Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about how to treat out-of-state bank interest, whether you should be tax-adjusting your net worth, and more. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. What is going on? Oh, just another day in paradise, my friend. And it is time for our May mailbag episode. We dive into our inbox, look at what you have been writing to us as our appreciated listeners. And let's start with some feedback, Dan. We got a few notes about the golf episode that we did. You forwarded these to me. And my favorite one, would you care if I read the title of an email we got? Sure. All right. Simply stating golf boring as four letter word. And that made me chuckle, Ross. I really enjoyed seeing that. Yeah. I feel like the test did not go in my favor. Now, I did also get some positive feedback on that episode as well. So we did hear from people that liked it, but the folks that didn't like it were louder. And so I I believe that has squashed the scientific exploration of whether or not this should be a crossover show between golf and investing topics on a regular basis. It will not be. We'll need to find another theme to bring up frequently that will alienate half our audience. You know what, though? And a couple people did reference like, hey, it's got to be tough coming up with stuff to talk about all the time. And that is the truth. And and we love this show. And when there's stuff in the news, it makes it really fun. And, and those are probably the easiest ones when there's something topical. But finding new ways to spin personal finance content every week is a challenge. And I I think we're up for it and we enjoy it. And we are hoping that we continue to find ways to connect with you all. But we do appreciate the feedback and message heard loud and clear. Yeah. And I'm excited about some stuff we have coming down the pike. We have a lot of great guests coming on, which always keeps things interesting. And then who knows what will pop up. It's a very exciting time in the news. So I'm sure we'll have something to talk about in the future related to the economy or taxes or whatever. There's always something. All right. So there's a few things here in our inbox question-wise that I thought we could get into today. Number one, this comes to us from Sam. Sam is in Virginia. He says, I have a question that may seem dumb, but I'm having a hard time finding a direct answer. Obviously, CD rates are very attractive right now for short-term investments, and they are very easy to purchase through an online brokerage account. However, most of the best rates I see are from banks that reside or are headquartered in other states. They don't have branches in my state. Some of them I've never even heard of, and they're obviously regional banks. If you buy a CD, I'm going to shorten the question here, but if you buy a CD from an out-of-state bank, Dan, do you have to file an out-of-state or a non-resident tax return in the state that issued the interest? I don't think that's a stupid question. I actually think that's a very smart question because if you essentially do business in another state, you are taught that you need to then file taxes in that state for income received. But this is a little bit different than doing business in that state. And I think the the quick answer is no. You do not need to file a state tax return for every financial institution that you're working with who may have paid you interest 
for deposits in that state. Yeah, I mean, in theory, uh, most of most banks you're going to deal with are going to be outside or headquartered outside of your main state. And even when you've got a relationship with a local branch, I don't know that it's considered that state's bank, right? I mean, if you've got a Bank of America account, that's a North Carolina-based bank. That's Aren't where they, they are. Yeah. Like, yes, there's a branch in Virginia, but in, in most cases, I think you're doing business with a North Carolina company. That doesn't mean that we all have to file North Carolina returns or New York returns for JP Morgan or, you know, Wells Fargo generating California returns, right? When we look at where those, those banks are headquartered, that does not create an issue for us. Yeah. And increasingly, most financial institutions are online. Like you cannot find a physical branch for a lot of entities that people are working with. Like all the high yield savings accounts, that's really their deal is that they don't have that overhead of a brick and mortar bank, which is what's allowing them to pay the nice attractive rates. So I think that's going to be more common that people have that. And then the other thing to look at if you are doing work across state lines is whether or not those states have reciprocity. Uh, And particularly in states where you're doing work across state lines, but it's very common. So states that sit right next to each other, that's very common to see states with reciprocity where you would still only have to file in your home state just because they assume it's going to even out. You've got enough people crossing the border from one side to the other and that it's going to work itself out in the end. Speaking of online accounts with high yield savings, another friendly reminder to make sure you're getting the most out of your cash and go online and see if there's some better yielding accounts for you than what you've defaulted into over time. No question. Yeah, this is a good time to be evaluating your your banking. All right, next question. Let's get into this. This comes to us from Marcus. I'm going to shorten Marcus's question down, but basically he is looking at his wife's pay stub. And there was some confusion about how a Roth 401k election gets calculated. Uh, And so just for the the sake of an example, if you elect to have 10% of your pay put into a Roth 401k, we think of that as after-tax money because the money is going to go through the income tax system. You will pay federal taxes on it in the year it's received when you're making a Roth 401k contribution. What generated confusion here is that they still do the calculation based on gross pay. And so I think if you're looking at this and saying, well, 10% of gross pay is what's going in to the Roth 401k, it's pretty easy to think that you're double paying taxes and that they're not using an after-tax calculation, which is how we think about the Roth. Does that make sense, Dan? It does. I laughed when we got this question only because we had talked about that internally just a day or two prior to receiving this. So it was pretty timely because someone else had the very same question because it does seem counterintuitive because the language you're always taught about Roth IRAs is after tax, after tax, after tax. So visually, when I think of after tax, I'm thinking of like bottom of the line numbers. But when you see a percentage taken off the top of the line number, your gross earnings, it seems like something is backwards, but in actuality, that is the way it works. You're taking a contribution based off your gross pay. They're still going to charge you taxes on that. So it's going to lower your take-home pay versus making a pre-tax contribution. But all of those dollars are going to hit your Roth 401k. The best way to test this, if you really wanted to go and look at it, is to make an equal contribution percentage-wise to both your traditional and Roth 401k. So if you put 5% in the traditional, 5% in the Roth, what you should see is the exact same dollar amount being contributed 
to both the traditional and the Roth 401k when you do it that way, because they're going to be doing that math on how much you want to contribute based on the same amount. Now, here's the other big deal. This is why a 10% contribution to a Roth is really a more powerful contribution than a 10% pre-tax contribution. It's because they're doing the math that way. That's why an equivalent pre-tax contribution might need to be 12% versus 10% into the Roth to have the same ultimate amount of money or the amount of kind of net wealth at the end. And so generally, if you're going to be doing pre-tax contributions, you want to assume that you're going to be saving that tax reduction that you're getting up front, right? That's kind of what we should be doing with it is capturing that tax reduction in the form of additional savings. Otherwise, you're you're kind of just missing it. Yeah, I think that's that's important to do. And and if you're thinking about your cash flows and thinking that the percentage you can put in a Roth or pre-tax is the same and it doesn't impact you, that's not true either because 10% into your pre-tax is going to give you a higher paycheck than 10% into your Roth, which doesn't mean you shouldn't do a Roth. It just means that you should know what you're signing up for. Yeah, or or if you're going to be doing the pre-tax, try and bump that contribution amount up to account for the difference. Yeah, exactly. A great question. It is a great question. And then this is related to that. This came in from Tom. Uh, and Tom asks, when you look at your net worth, how do you treat pre-taxed accounts? Do you discount them at some tax rate? When I look at my net worth, some of the accounts I have are pre-tax, some of them are after-tax, and some of them might just be brokerage accounts where you've got some combination of basis and then capital gains baked into it. Dan, do you do an adjustment when you think about net worth and making that sort of a look at your assets? This is another great question. And I think everyone probably approaches it differently. And for me, I don't know this, if this is a great answer or not, but it depends on the situation that I'm looking at my net worth for. So if I'm looking at something related to spending, I have a spending goal and we want to see my ability to support that, I actually do take an after-tax value of my assets because that's a truer representation of what I have available to me. And I want to know how much of that money is just phantom money because it's going to the IRS. But if I'm doing just a more casual net worth statement because we're doing a part of a long-term financial plan, I won't necessarily take out the taxes from that number because it's not as critical for the objective that we have in front of us. Here's another spot that I think that you can, I mean, I, I would suggest there's almost a haircut you have to apply to almost any asset except for a Roth. That, that's yeah. probably the only asset that you can get out of, assuming that you're over the retirement age of 59 and a half, but that's probably the only thing you can get away with not adjusting. I would suggest even a home, even if you've got a paid off home, what are you going to pay as soon as you go to transact on that home? Realtor yeah. costs. Realtor. You're going to give up 5 6% off the top of your sale price. Even if you've got the home in your mind calibrated to exactly what you're going to collect. For me, I wouldn't go through the effort of adjusting everything on my balance sheet to a what can I actually get out. But if you're doing modeling, what we tend to look at is what is my expected cash? And so if I go to show somebody in a financial plan, we're going to sell your home. The first thing I do is I calculate what that cost to transact in it is. Then I subtract out whatever the mortgage left is, right? Taxes. So we want to show the net number that you're actually going to get. It doesn't matter what the 
sale price of the house was. What really matters is what you're going to receive from it. And so for cash flow planning, I think this is the perfect question is you have to look at what am I going to be able to take for simply looking at your net worth and what you've saved. I don't know that I would make that adjustment. This reminds me of an interesting conversation I had with someone recently. I was speaking with a specialist in business valuation uh, because I was talking to someone who owned a percentage of a private company and was thinking about selling it because he needed liquidity and uh, was curious about um, who he could work with to, to value that stake in the business. And one thing that the valuation guy told me was he asked what the percentage of the business was. And because it was a smaller number than 50% than controlling interest, even if the business is valued at one thing, to value his stake in that business, you wouldn't simply multiply that percentage by the value of the business because people won't pay as much for a less than controlling stake in the entity. So you have to discount that further because the market for that kind of asset is so much smaller than, than someone who can buy something up and then suddenly control the business, which is really what they want to do. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. That That's an interesting adjustment. Here's a spot where I think people would probably assume that their net worth is lower than it really is, is if you've got a pension. You know, if we think about a, a safe withdrawal rate of four and a half percent in perpetuity, if you've got a $45,000 pension, that's like having a, an extra million bucks sitting around in the bank that you're not including on your balance sheet because you've got access to that capital. So I would suggest anybody that's got a reliable source of income. I think, quite frankly, Social Security, we could value that way as well. So if we were going to completely try and adjust somebody's balance sheet to what is the present value of their future cash flows, there's a lot that we could do to, to ultimately discount back to current and add that back to their balance sheet if we just wanted it to look like a bigger number. Yeah, for sure. There, there are a lot of games that you can play here. And I think they're not. there's a reason for a lot of these things that we would do depending on the situation that we're in. So there's value to looking at net numbers. You could include tax liability as a liability on your balance sheet if you wanted to, instead of just reducing your asset so you can see it clearly. But hopefully that at least starts to address the question. But it's an incredibly hard adjustment to make, right? Because the goal is to get the IRA assets out at a low tax rate. So even choosing what rate you're going to discount it by, I mean, you could certainly apply just like a blanket 20, 22% or whatever you think your marginal rate in retirement is going to be on average. But the likelihood is it's going to float and your blended kind of effective tax rate on those things is not likely to be the same as that marginal rate every year. And so that it's there's kind of a, a spot at which the effort just becomes more than what it's really worth, depending on what you're trying to figure out. Yeah, you, you could spend all day doing this stuff. And sometimes we do. Uh, but, you know, it's a it's an art, not a science. Yeah, no, exactly. That's the that's the craft piece of it. All right, let's get into another question here. I'm going to have to scroll past a few of the we hate golf emails. feedback emails <laughs> just to get to this next one. The other the other title of a golf email I liked is just simply against golf. <laughs> I, yeah, there there were there were several about the golf. I got texts about the golf too. Uh, all good stuff. I was uh, I played on the golf team in high school despite not being very good. And anytime the golf team was announced or like highlighted at a ceremony, the entire gym erupted with a chant of golf is not a sport. And it made me laugh because, I mean, I think it's true. One can argue, but at the end of the day, golf is a pastime and a, a fun game, but 
I would argue it's not a sport, but it, but it was funny. It sounds like a lot of people would have joined in the cheers in my high school days. So this next question comes to us from Vaughn in Michigan. It says, I love the podcast. Appreciate the practical advice and great information you provide every week. It seems like many financial shows speak almost exclusively about subjects related to retirement. And while I understand that retirees or those close to retirement are probably the primary listeners of financial podcasts, I appreciate the diverse range of topics. Keep up the good work. We appreciate you as well. We do try and hit on stuff, whether it's for savers, whether it's for business owners, whether it's for folks making that transition into or through retirement. We, we try to, to cover a lot of this stuff because it's kind of what comes up in our day. So here's the question. I have a question regarding IRAs and 401ks. I don't understand why employer-sponsored 401k and 403b plans are designed to have so many advantages over IRAs, such as significantly higher annual contribution limits and employer matching capabilities. I frequently hear statistics about how many people don't save enough for retirement because their employer doesn't offer a retirement plan. There seems to be a growing movement to make it cheaper and easier for small businesses to implement and administer retirement plans for their employees. But I don't understand why they don't just allow IRAs to have all the same features and benefits that a 401k and 403b has. In our modern society, employees are switching jobs, companies so much more often than was common in the past. Having your primary retirement account directly tied to a specific company seems antiquated and unnecessary. In short, uh, to wrap this up, why do the IRA investors, why does the individual investor that doesn't have access to a company 401k plan get the short end of the stick here? The simple answer is there are different sections of the tax code. I mean, that's the answer, but I don't understand why that has to be the case. It drives me crazy too that so much of what's important to build around yourself for a safety net and personal finance is given to you by your employer and you don't have the option to get as good quality on your own, whether that's retirement benefits or healthcare. It just makes no sense to me. Um, as an owner of a small business, I recently went through the exercise of trying to get a 401k in place for my brewery. And I learned that the state of Maryland was now sponsoring employer-sponsored plans as an option for a 401k or, or an official employer-sponsored plan. And the whole selling point of this was it was exactly as Vaughn described. It was tied to the individual that the employer could tap into the individual can take it with them. It's not tied to a specific plan for the employer. And I thought, this is great. This is exciting. But when I looked into it further, it wasn't a 401k. It was really just an IRA for the individual. The company didn't have an ability to match. The limits were the same as the IRA limits. So this is a really poor solution to, to the problem that Vaughn identified. But I'm hoping that because that kind of system is in place, maybe it can expand over time to be more robust. Uh, but I do think that's something worth addressing. I mean, quite frankly, you don't have to look hard at our tax code to find spots where it is tilted in favor of ownership interests and business owners over that of individuals, right? I mean, there are just so many places where between how you treat income, how you deduct it, uh, you know, I think a, a simple example would be something like S-Corp income that can flow through and then goes around FICA taxes. Right. If if you own an S corp and you are taking a reasonable salary from it, the salary is subject to your Social Security and Medicare taxes. The 
ownership distribution, so a distribution of profits above and beyond that, is still taxable as income, but goes around the FICA taxes for, for most pass-through entities. Like there, There's just so many different places in the tax code that ownership, whether you look at the capital gains tax, how that is lower than income taxes are. And I think that what really led to Section 401k and the related parts of the tax code was that businesses of that era, when when they were invented, were really doing more pensions. Uh, and so I think the reason the 401k is more robust is likely because it was built as a pension replacement, not as a savings replacement. It ended up becoming a savings replacement as more and more companies have adopted it. But I, And again, I, this is just my suspicion. I haven't done a ton of research here, but I would bet quite a bit that that is why it's so much more robust, is it was just never designed to be an individual savings vehicle. And, and so the IRA never caught up with it for that reason. They weren't trying to equalize them. Yeah, I think so much of what we have in place today is just a product of old things that kind of persisted over time. I mean, look look at all the the updates to the tax code that we still see. They're all additive. They almost never take anything away. They just keep adding new rule, new rule, new rule, and it just makes it harder and harder and harder to follow. I think our episode talking about the RMD rules and and how Secure 2.0 has kind of clarified and how the IRS has clarified some of the inherited IRA rules, that Wrong. that is <laughs> like that's point blank an example of just adding muddiness and 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 more confusion even for the folks like us that do this every day. And so we're we're committed to being lifelong learners. I'm sure we get things wrong on this show. We do our best for you all, but it's it's complicated for a reason. We can spend all day doing this and still miss stuff. I, I don't know if we addressed this directly on the show or not, but the IRS had to clarify I, I don't know if it was clarifying or kind of realizing for the first time what they were doing had to clarify their ruling on the 10-year rule for inherited IRAs because the whole world, after that came out, thought that you had a 10-year window to distribute money from an inherited IRA with no required distributions, potentially. And then only last year, after the rule had been in place for a little bit, did they say, well, that's not quite what we meant. Here's what we meant, but we're not going to enforce penalty for the prior years if, if you screwed up. Because they didn't say that. It was like the first time they were mentioning there might be a required distribution from those accounts. Yeah, there's no question. They, they, and they have to do stuff like that all the time, both in terms of like clarification um, writing and then like private letter rulings and things like that that they have to ultimately weigh in on to clarify the tax code. Because let's remember, the IRS doesn't write the tax code. They are an enforcement agency of laws that are written for them by Congress. Right. When when people talk about defunding the IRS, I always chuckled just a little bit like the IRS is the problem. The IRS did not choose a single tax that you pay. They are simply the advanced calculation and collection division. So right. if you're mad about what your taxes are, don't be mad at the IRS. We should defund other people. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, there's a, there's a few people I'd like to defund. So. We should go through an exercise, Ross, where each of us have to write a tax code, a new one from scratch, and see what we come up with. Oh, that would, that would, t- I could spend the next year doing that and not come up with anything. We should give ourselves 15 minutes to do it. 15 minutes to rewrite <laughs> yeah. the tax code? And see, and see what each of us have as our 15 minute tax code for the United States. Are we going to do it in crayon? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like colored pencil personally. All right. Fair enough. Well, we hope that these questions 
If you had them as well, that this was helpful, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for our show. I do think we need to update that email address. That inbox is always really, really cluttered. It sends a lot of stuff to spam. It's it's always a little bit challenging to deal with. We should get a, a big boy email address. I know. I'm cheap. I don't want to We've pay for it. We've been doing this long enough. We w- Back when we started and we thought we had a couple weeks in us and here we are at like 100 plus episodes later. Right. Yeah. You, you, you decide on something that simple of like, hey, the show needs an email address and I need it to not be blowing my, my main inbox up every single day. What do I do? And we end up with this thing. Yeah. It's like when you chose a screen name for AOL Instant Messenger <laughs> at 12 years old and then you're 19 and in college with like poke boy 32 whatever that's like, that's hey, very revealing dan i mean that wasn't me but it wasn't far from that fair enough uh well thanks for tuning in everybody we will catch you all next week on another episode